You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my two buddies, Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kistler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Hey, guys, good to see you again. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Good. Good Good. It's like so good. I feel like a day is like a thousand years right now. So, so like, I feel like I haven't seen you in a year, Mark, but it's only been been, been like four or five days. So I know know. it's just crazy how much it's just, it feels like things have been happening really, really fast. I know it is. So it's good to be with you. I'm really excited you're back. Uh, We missed you terribly. I'm sure people are listening as well. So let's get straight into the news. We're going to hammer this out. And one of the most important topics I think we're hearing from our listeners is talking all about travel and what should what we what we should be doing. So, but let's hit the news really fast. First of all, between our uh, Wednesday and today, the the WHO declared the coronavirus a pandemic. Okay, so what does this mean, Stephen? And does this change the game? So, I think the answer is yes and no. Whether it changes the game. So, on the one hand, um, amongst epidemiologists. We've been considering this thing a pandemic, which basically means that there's been sustained transmission in multiple countries uh, for a while now. Um, but I think that now calling it a pandemic really sorts of sort of brings people together and it, you know it really sends the statement that this is something that we're all in together and is worth us all responding to as one. So then going into the other thing I read in the news on, I think Wednesday was that there was a new study that came out in the coronavirus saying that oh that that it can actually last in the air for up to three hours. And that could live on services for for days. So I read this and I'm like, I got to look concerned about, okay, my mail, that kind of stuff. So is this true first and foremost, Stephen? And then should we be concerned about this? Yeah. So it it seems like the the study that you're referencing is accurate um, as far as we can tell. Um, But transmission of disease is a very complex process. Um, it's, it's often not the case that just sort of ingesting one viral particle causes you to have an infection. And so the fact that they're finding, you know, survival of the virus on these surfaces over time does not necessarily mean that the, the dose that you would get by touching it and then touching your face or something like that would be enough to infect you. It could be, but I think that the best practices that we've been following so far, like washing our hands and maybe disinfecting the surfaces that people touch most often, doorknobs, light switches, that sort of thing, um, especially if you're in charge of a business, um, those things all still hold. And those are things that we really ought to be doing all the time. Um, otherwise, I think that sort of the basic epidemiology that we've been thinking about and has, uh, is exactly the same as it was. Great. And I, and just to disalarm, I think, everyone, because when I read it, yeah, of course, I, I got a little, little anxious, maybe. But then there was this other, you know, small study in Chicago, uh, Stephen and Mark and I were talking about this. And it's a small study of, you know, a, a couple who infected each other with the coronavirus, but then interviewed 300 of their um, uh, friends and family who they had been in contact with, and none of them were infected with the coronavirus, which seems to lend, even though it's a small sa- sample, that it, like Stephen has said over and over, that it is the, the duration of exposure that really is the key factor. And so this idea of living in the air for three hours and, 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 and days on on plastic services, which I think Stephen knows and he's been talked about, is that, of course, as it stays on a surface, it begins to lose its potency and all this kind of combined, I think, in the end says, okay, it's not that big of a concern. Just wash your hands and move forward. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, all of that just emphasizes, too, that um, as you guys were talking about previously, this idea of, you know, the the little things that we can do, these little optional things mm. may actually contribute a little bit. You know, the, you know, if if you're reducing the amount of sustained contact or if you're reducing the amount of viral particles on a surface, sure, maybe you're not eliminating every single thing <laughs> and, you know, things are hanging around, but a little bit may help. And I think that that's another, you know, another way to kind of look at that data. 
Yeah, if you have a propensity to kiss doorknobs, now yeah. is maybe not the time to do it. Like, Huge. That's right. That's a good, good, or good ever again. Yeah, yeah. or ever again. Yeah, it's like a yeah. good Pareto principle. That's, that that literally is the twenty percent that could change the world. <laughs> so, yeah. oh yeah. And then one and the one more thing before we get into the, the deep dive of our of our episode is, I just have to have Stephen and Mark reiterate this really quickly. I just see it. It's like it's a little concerning. Everybody's saying, gosh, the flu, come on. Everybody's dying from the flu. What's the concern of coronavirus? Get over it, people. This is some kind of political scheme. Can, can you just reiterate one more time, you guys, of the difference between the two? And this is different. Yeah, you know, I think um, it, it, you're exactly right. This is definitely a different phenomenon than what's going on with the flu. And I think Stephen can talk about it with from an epidemiologic standpoint. What I'm attentive to are the ways that the the way that we frame that, um, the way the language that we use around that um, makes the perception of that comparison radically different. Uh, and so I'm getting, you know, there's certain messaging, especially from public health authorities and things like that, um, that I've heard, especially earlier before things have had really, you know, opened up in the last week as they have, um, you know, to remind people not to forget that there are other respiratory illnesses, that there are other things that are um, potentially hazards to health that these same measures can help to modify, you know, modifiable uh exposures and that sort of thing. Um, and also to temper a little bit of the sense of kind of panic that you guys were, you know, we're talking about last time. Mm. Um, at the same time, this is this phenomenon, this is different kind of physiologically and epidemiologically from influenza. And maybe Stephen can talk a little bit about, you know, that specific part and how it's different. From the epidemiology perspective, um, really the, one of the key things that separates uh, this coronavirus from flu is that our entire population, the whole world, is, is basically susceptible to this infection. Mm. Whereas with seasonal flu, um, you know, it evolves and mutates every year, but you know, the, the thing that you got infected with last year probably gives you some degree of immunity to the thing that it could infect you this year, which both lowers your chance of getting infected and also probably reduces the severity of that infection. So the fact that this is a new virus and something that our immune systems hasn't been exposed to um, means that it can, uh, it can spread through the population a lot more quickly and just that our natural defenses just aren't as high to it. Um, so we're, we're still, I would say, fairly early in the stages of this outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so I think we just need to be prepared for the fact that this, you know, this thing will spread, um, and will probably spread, you know, in a big way, but there are also a lot of things that we can do to help mitigate that. Okay. And all things that, that of course, you know, denial that these things help denial that these things matter doesn't help. Um, exactly. that I think it's really important to emphasize that these things do matter. And even with an optimistic outlook, we can, you know, potentially change the course of how things are going. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. And so, Stephen, you just mentioned this, and this is a great transition. You said, yeah, this is really kind of early on in the stages of the coronavirus. So that's why we've seen in the news in the past two days, this kind of going crazy, this image, this graph of this curve, right? So we're kind of early in this curve. And and Mark, I kind of want to have you start first on this and talk about what is this curve and this, and, and this kind of desire and this promotion to try to flatten it. So what does this mean for us? What is it? And what is it trying to tell us to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, and it's interesting because I, I just came off of a week uh, on service in the hospital, um, you know, working on the hospitalist teams where 
it, essentially a lot of the patients who come in through <clears throat> the emergency room, you know, and, and make it and are sick enough to be hospitalized will eventually be cared for by sort of internal medicine generalists and hospitalists. Um, and so there's been a lot of conversation about this idea. Um, and the way that I think about it is that essentially there's a threshold effect, right? And so <clears throat> as you get a population that's exposed to a certain condition, a certain illness, um, it, then you start to see more and more cases over time. You can kind of conceptualize that as a bell curve, right? So you have a few at the beginning, a lot as a lot of the population gets exposed, and then it tapers off. Um, and the trick is that there's a threshold effect, right? And I think everybody, you know, this has been just totally saturating mm -hmm. social media and the news, um, this idea that if this rate of transmission, the rate of the incidence of the disease crosses a certain threshold, we start to exceed the capacities of our healthcare systems to care for all of those patients. Uh, and so even in a scenario in which the same absolute number of people are eventually infected, if we can flatten that curve, if we can slow it out, slow it out so that it's not so many people at once, it puts a tremendously different uh, strain on our resources and our capacities as a healthcare system. And that, of course, flows out not just to coronavirus cases, but to everything. Um, so every single person, you know, who might need to access healthcare at some point uh, is going to be helped, you know, whether you're personally susceptible to the coronavirus or if you're in one of the low-risk populations, um, you know, of course, you may still need to access care. And those that care may, if we don't flatten the curve a little bit, be strained uh, be, just because of the phenomenon of, you know, the incidence of this disease. You know, I think we've seen that in Italy a little bit. There's been some news over the last few days that there are situations in which, you know, patients are having to wait for beds and isolation, things like that. And that in in terms of thinking just like feet on the ground how do we mitigate um this becoming a you know a true healthcare crisis with high mortality rates in this country it's just really important that we have have those resources and are able to put those resources where they're needed yeah awesome mark i think that that's you know i agree with everything you just said um i think that was a great description of sort of what's what's going on and what's maybe facing us um, can we can you make sure you got that last part on tape, Matt? The whole agree with everything you said. <laughs> yeah, I will. I totally <laughs> like, will. I just want to make sure that's okay. I will. It's, it's, <laughs> it's officially in. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah. So I, from the epidemiology side, um, Matt, you were mentioning that figure that uh, compares St. Louis with Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. um, and and that that's a really good depiction of what happened in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic in these two cities that took very different measures towards social distancing. The the key thing is that so Philadelphia in the in the aftermath of the of World War One held a parade as the Spanish flu was spreading, okay. and and it was basically right after that parade that we see this massive spike in cases, and you know we can all say like you know it's absolutely crazy how could they do that well. St. Patrick's Day is coming up, and yeah. Boston was about to hold our St. Patrick's Day parade on Sunday, which brings about a million people to the city. And so there was this really this huge outcry. People were saying, like, are we going to repeat this, really? And so in my circles, that was where this figure really started being circulated. Ultimately, the parade did get canceled. Um, and I think that that was, that was a, a good move, because gathering tons of people together in one space as you said earlier, for prolonged periods of time, really just creates the perfect scenario for spreading infection to a lot of people. The other key takeaway from that paper is that really a matter of days counts in terms of these social distancing measures. So the time to begin doing these things is now, because as I mentioned before, the, the, the virus is new. We don't really have any natural defenses to it. And so it can spread very quickly. You know, and then in these early phases, it spreads exponentially. The, in, in epidemiology, we talk about this doubling 
time. And we think that for this virus, cases double on the order of five to seven days. And that's incredibly quickly if you start doing the math on that. So as soon as we start doing these social distancing measures, as soon as possible, we can really, really have a huge impact if we just get on top of it soon. So, you know, it's a matter of really, really thinking about your neighbor and thinking about how you can start preventing illness from the people around you some of these voluntary sorts of behaviors and um and and that can really have a profound impact on what mark was talking about and preventing this huge strain on the health system and making sure that people can get the care they need mm. and I, I want to interject really quickly here because right now you said you have the example of the parade and then the saint patrick's day a million people so i could see easily saying hey i get it uh, have the government shut down these big events uh you know nobody they've got it under control that's good it doesn't impact me and I'm not sure that's what we're trying to say either. Like, I think, uh, I know with me and just in my work, I'm trying to help facilitate uh, how we can do social distancing. So I, St. Patrick's Day parade is, is canceled. Great. But what about us? What about me? What should I be doing yeah. in, my, in, in a smaller way? And does it have an impact? Absolutely. A huge impact, in fact, because truly, I mean, as we know, every, every case can lead to, you know, a, a couple of others and a couple of others. So mm-hmm. really every little thing that you can do to, to help prevent the spread is really valuable. And, and we can ask, you know, what are these things? And, um, you know, it's, it's just reducing the contacts that you have with other people. So maybe staying in from, uh, you know, going to shows or even going to restaurants when you don't need to. And, uh, and even making sure that the people you're interacting with are the same people over and over, because it's as we mix our interactions among different communities, that's really one of the key drivers of spread. But as long as we're sort of, you know, we have our tight knit group of people, you know, and, and, and this doesn't mean that you have to sort of totally isolate yourself, but, Mm -hmm. you know, be with your families, you know, be with a handful of really close people, but maybe limit the amount that you're, you know, going out and interacting with, with a lot of new people. And, and this, this really is in our hands. In light of all of this, uh, we've been hearing a lot of feedback about uh, what we should be doing and we hear about within the work environment. We're getting a lot of requests about travel. Like, should we be going on flights? I have someone, I have one person who is going to Tahoe in, in seven days and should they go to, to, to on their trip to Lake Tahoe? Uh, I, have, I have a person who is refusing to let go of their flights in seven days to to visit their elderly parents for their 50th (laughs) uh, anniversary. And all these questions are happening. So I want to pick your brains. What should we be doing right now in light of travel? Yeah, so um, I think that we we really ought to be very cautious around travel, and it really falls into what I was talking about earlier about this this voluntary reducing our number of interactions. You know, when we travel, we interact with tons and tons of people and spend a lot of time in close quarters with other people, mm-hmm. and we also interact with these new social groups. So really, travel is one of one of the optimal ways for infection to spread. Mm-hmm. So I would say that I mean, people at very high risk of severe outcomes from infection should really probably think about not traveling you know now but i think that the other main thing is that we really again have an opportunity to help prevent the spread of disease here by by making some of these sacrifices in our own travel if we're able to and you know that makes it easier for the people who do need to travel you know maybe there are people who need to travel mm-hmm. to get medical procedures in places where they don't live and by us not being on that airplane it makes it easier for them to distance themselves and prevent themselves mm-hmm. from infection too and that's really crucial right now Great. Mark? Yeah. You know, I think, again, just to kind of point to the resources that are available to us, the CDC published, I think, about two days ago, sort of a questionnaire, you know, should I travel within the U.S.? Because, of course, you know, we're not talking about travel to areas where there's known 
mm-hmm. community spread going on. But as Stephen has mentioned, you know, even a matter of days, this can change even within our country. And so there's some questions, you know, to consider that are on the CDC website. These things include, you know, are you a high risk population? Are you uh, is COVID spreading where you live or where you're going, of course? And, you know, will you have close contact with others or large groups of other people during your trip? All that being said, you know, those are helpful guidelines and, and things. But if we're exercising sort of the the type of caution and prudence, especially early in the outbreak to try and flatten that curve, we may want to take, you know, more more conservative approach with travel, even domestically. And I know it's just that's just kind of what I'm doing personally of just I mean, clearly I'm not traveling anywhere, but just in my own life, I'm doing everything I can within my power, within as yeah. a, as a as a husband and as a father and as a grandson and as a son, uh, just to do do what I can to distance. So it's hard. I know some people have no capacity to like to be able to refrain from it, and my heart goes out, especially those who are, who are like gravely impacted by jobs that require face to face encounters, whether you're a bartender or or a waiter or a waitress, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden your your financial resources are being depleted. I do know that there's government going in to help, you know, so please look into that. I know for uh, those who can't get to work or can't work for a period of time, you can get, sign up for unemployment just, just to get some, some, some money in, in the time while we're having some social distancing. But here at my work, I, you know, I just came into my office and told somebody like, Hey, I think we should cancel all events. And one of the, one of the people that were there like, no, don't cancel, don't cancel, don't cancel. And my eyes just lit up like what? And I explained the situation, not in a minute of panic, but in, but in the midst of what the opportunity would, that we have here to, to, to help protect and, uh, and just knowing that it's hard and I'm doing everything I can. Cause I think, you know, I want to stay home for as long as I can for a little bit, just to help. As Steven said, as Mark said, the quicker we do this, the quicker we're done with this. And that's, that's what we want to do. Yeah. Can I interject a quick anecdote there? Sure. Um, so yeah, so, um, I have a good friend who is a musician and, you know, as Matt mentioned, musicians are one of the groups of people who are really being economically affected by this because people just aren't willing to go out to their shows. And he was wondering sort of out loud, this was on Facebook, you know, what, what can he do for this? And so he said, okay, you know what? I will pay a hundred dollars for any musician who wants to live stream a solo concert to me right now. Mm. And, and, and it it, it really got a lot of responses and people were saying, oh yeah, you know, like we can just like set up a a Skype performance or something. And this is something that we can do to help these people, you know, that, you know, are, are, are earning a livelihood, but, but their ability to bring in an income right now has been severely threatened, but we can really be creative with the technology that we have and really on this individual scale to help support the people who are being most affected by this and to enrich our own lives. I mean, bringing live music into our own homes in this time of uncertainty can be hugely valuable right so i thought that that was just a really a really great response to what was going on that i mean i just want to <laughs> that's like so incredibly important see i'm so glad you brought that i was just thinking about so okay go back to the 2008 financial crisis what happened as a result of this there was a huge uprising of entrepreneurship and creativity in the midst of crises. I'm like, this is what's afforded to us, right? We're hitting, we're hitting a tough time, but this also allows us to be really more creative, to find new ways and maybe even better ways to connect, right? So that is, I love that example. Uh, you know, Stephen, Stephen and I have been talking a little bit offline about, we have some family in Italy, in a province just kind of south of Rome and they, you know, they're they're not in northern Italy where that has been hit the hardest by this. Um, but there's definitely really significant economic impacts throughout the country, you know, and they're kind of grappling with with dealing with this. And I, I was wondering, Stephen's gotten some texts from from some of our cousins, and you know, can you speak at all to like what's going on there and what this social distancing has kind of done, you know, 
for them. Yeah, absolutely. So I I have heard from them, and, and just to say right off the bat, it sounds like everybody's doing okay right now. So so I'm really happy for that. But yeah, it's really affected them a lot. You know, they're they're basically all of their interactions outside the home have been like severely limited. And I think even across Italy, basically all businesses have been closed aside from uh, grocery stores and pharmacies. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, things have been really limited from the top down. But there's there's also been this really amazing sort of from the ground up. I I feel like almost almost resurgence of of hope and of this sense of like Italian and also just like human spirit. So amongst our our cousins mm-hmm. there, I, I've seen these hashtags going around. One of which is it, it says "tutto andrà bene," which means everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has just been lighting up across you know the social networks that I've seen in Italy. And you know it's it's just this sense that like you know there's there's this crisis going on, but you know, but our our spirit is is not going to be tramped down by this, and 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 we will come out the other side, and we will still be who we were, and we'll even be we'll even be more than what we were. We'll be you know more tightly knit, and we'll be we will have gone through this thing together, and we will have supported one another through it, and and that really seems to be the prevailing notion that I'm seeing from from everyone who I've seen posting there. It's it's not this you know sense of fear or panic. It's it's this real sense of like we're in this together, and and and, and there's hope. I think that kind of the great dovetails with what we're just trying to advocate right. now now. And I think in conclusion, we're trying to advocate a sense of let's take whatever we can right now to do some social distancing uh, to help keep this from peaking for the sake of the healthcare system. But I think we also want to say, like, why? Why do we want to do this? And I think Italy is a great illustration of they've, I think they've nailed the why. And that's why they've, they, they can do the hashtag, everything's going to be okay. And I kind of want to, one of the articles I read, oh, it's like maybe two days ago, is something about like, is it safe? It opposed the question, is it safe to go to the gym or go to the, res- or go to the restaurant? And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I think what I what I what I saw was was word safe, and what I thought of immediately was self interest, and I thought oh, I think we have the wrong mindset again, and so I think this helps us to really ground all of this in something that's profoundly hopeful, and that is I don't think we ought to look at it as through a sense of like where should I go so that or where should I not go so that I am not exposed, but rather I think we should look at it through a lens of. What can I do to help protect those around me from not being infected? And now I'm enabled. It's something that's actually now a just cause and somewhat exciting to participate in something greater. Like Stephen said, the um, St. Louis and the Philadelphia. I don't think we want to be the Philadelphia city in this example. We want to be the St. Louis example that after a couple of cases, they took pretty extreme measures and immediately had really profound results that saved many, many, many lives. So I'm really calling us to realize that, gosh, you know what? This kind of sucks. I mean, acknowledge that it does. It, it, and that's kind of an understatement. The fact that we're being asked to maybe undergo some pretty significant sacrifices, but for a temporary period of time for something greater, right? So that we, A, we don't peak the curve and oversaturate the healthcare system so that whether you're 20 or 75 or you get in a car accident and you can't get healthcare because we're over, over indated with, 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 uh, with sickness within the system. But we look at this as opportunity to be able to see how on earth can I live a life by which I live through this idea of the gift? How can I provide help for someone else? Else, so I think this is a paradigm shift that I think we're all trying to, to, to ask for everyone to do for a temporary period of time. And the coolest thing about this is that if we can actually begin to corporately and individually change our mindset from self-preservation to like protect, how can I help those people who need protect to be able to prevent them from getting sick? 
this will have a long-term impact. I'm thinking of like the cool hashtags that we can, we can, we can throw out there that, we, that we're, you know, hashtag choosing to protect, hashtag staying home, hashtag grasp to gift. And I talk about this idea that like, instead of trying to think through the world of what can I grasp for my own, but how can I provide service for someone else? And you know what? This is going to be over in like a week, two months, three months, whatever. At least the hard part will be over with. But the good news is that if we change our, our frame of mind, our hearts are going to be expanded. We're going to find ourselves just naturally more generous. It's going to change entire culture for the better. So just like the 2008 crisis, the economic crisis turned into a huge gift and opportunity for so many people in creativity, entrepreneurship. Not that I want this on anyone whatsoever, but I do see there, there is a profound gift here that we can transform an individual, uh, a community, a culture to expand our heart for generosity. Yeah, you know, I think, and I really appreciate you going there, uh, Matt, because I think what, I've, what I'm experiencing among friends, family, colleagues um, is this profound sense of, of uncertainty right now. And, you know, where, what, are, what are we doing and how do we respond? I think there's, there's this real hunger, even amongst, you know, the folks that, that I, I work with, you know, that deal with illness and disease about how do we respond in this moment when what's, you know, what's going to happen? We talked about how quickly things are changing. And I think a little bit about uh, sometimes when I have a patient at work who has, who knows they have something, who knows they have a diagnosis. We're not quite sure what yet. You know, we maybe don't know quite what the the prognosis is or what it's going to mean. And I'll often tell them, you know, this, this is the hardest part that there, there are going to be hard things later, you know, and there were hard things that preceded this moment, but it's this brief period of, of not knowing, um, that's often the hardest for us, um, it, cause it helps to have names and it helps to have numbers. And I think, you know, we're, we're kind of experiencing a collective moment of that right now. Um, a collective moment of holding our breath, you know, and seeing, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I think precisely using that time and being, you know, being mindful in this time about, um, th there's a way I think of, of, you know, not, and not without being too pat and too, um, you know, too, too kind of starry eyed, you know, op <laughs> optimistic. Cause I think we need to be grounded and realistic, sure. but, but there's a sense that there's a real work that happens in the period of waiting in a real kind of turning over, you know, of like how in this time of uncertainty, it's, this is the time where we, we kind of investigate how we're going to go forward. And, and I love the idea of kind of, you know, turning outwards and, and doing this, you know, for our communities um, and kind of working against the way that the contagion, you know, isolates and saying, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to respond in this different way. Uh, and we're going to find new ways to connect. And I was just telling Stephen and Mark before this, I know it's getting a little long, but I think it's important. I work on a college campus, which a lot of the students don't care, which I wish they did. And I, I thought, I'm going to do a video. And here's my video. I'm going to go into an apartment of some student who's chilling on the couch. And I'm going to say, what are you doing? And he's going to respond, casually look in the camera and look at the look at the lens and say saving lives and go that's i mean the, the thing is it's not like the first few centuries where people were going into an, like a some kind of plague right and helping people we're literally asking you to chill for a little bit stay in your house no i get it tongue in cheek yep. some people that has some pretty bad consequences, right? <laughs> uh, you know, if you, if you have to go to work. But for those of us who have, like me, I can work from home. So I want to work from home for the sake of the greater community. So I want to encourage you guys, use the hashtag, promote this, choosing to protect, staying home, grasp the gift, exploring new ways to connect. All these are hashtags. And I want to caution you with one thing, that don't use this in a tribal concept of like, that I'm, we're all in this together and everybody who goes outside is our enemy. Let's fight them. Like, that's not what we're looking for. Like, we don't, we, we don't need 
need to have more connotations of fight, that all we're responsible is to ourselves, self-accountability, and invite other people and to participate in this idea to protect those. In a couple of months, we can be like St. Louis, right? So there's hope. There's awesome. We need to stay grounded. And I think this is a great way to end this episode. What do you think, guys? Sounds great, man. Thanks again. Great, great to you. have you guys on. Well, we're going to be recording another episode really soon. Again, if you have questions, you can, uh, right now, Mark doesn't have a Twitter account, but Stephen does, so you can... Uh, <laughs> Mark, work thing. Mark, we'll Mark does not have a, have a Twitter handle, and he has a computer from 1995. So, <laughs> so uh, oh, I just learned about that. But you can at least uh, direct message Stephen uh, Kissler at... S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R. And of course, if you have any uh, questions about the podcast, you can direct uh, direct message me on Twitter at M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R. My name is Matt Botker. It's great to be with you guys. We'll see you again in a day or two. Take care.